1: This is a character in Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN at 7 o'clock. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers and officially licensed Rolex jeweler. Randy Carriker and Michelle Smallman with you on a uh, solemn morning in St. Louis and across our country, really, because of the violence that has been incited by the death of George Floyd a week ago yesterday. and. Michelle, first of all, good morning. Good morning, Randy. I was so proud yesterday in seeing the protests in downtown St. Louis, the nonviolent protests, and in O'Fallon where you have uh, protesters locked arm in arm with police officers. And I, I was saying to myself, well, this is what St. Louis should do. We're, we can set an example for people by mm-hmm. having nonviolent protests, which because of the people uh, that are so affected, I think we should all. Take part in our own way in protesting the behavior of those police officers, not only in Minneapolis, but across the country that have killed unarmed black men. But that being said, uh, that pride turned to real disappointment last night. When the Seven Eleven, I've been to that Seven Eleven a lot. When I worked in downtown St. Louis on Seventeenth Street, that's burned to the ground. Uh, we have battles between police officers and protesters that wind up in four police officers in the city of St. Louis being shot. And I know that in the Bible it says an eye for an eye. In this particular situation, I don't think that. The situation is going to be improved by looking for an eye for an eye.
2: No, I I think violence to to deal with violence is not the answer. And I understand that people are mad. I understand that this has been uh, a pot that has been boiling for a while and it's spilling over. I understand that people are angry, but I also think you're never going to get progress with violence. And so it it just breaks my heart seeing what transpired in St. Louis overnight. I hate that You're, you're seeing shots being fired, officers being hit people losing their lives, people losing their livelihoods, their businesses burning down, the damage that's being done. It's just, I I just hope that we can all come together and have some really important dialogue and and somehow affect change because if we've learned anything over the past couple days, what happened since Ferguson, it's not gotten better. And avoiding these tough conversations is not going to make it better.
1: And part of the conversation is community leadership. And when you have a community trust like a sports team you should be a leader and you pointed out to me moments ago that uh, two of the very few franchises in the national hockey league and major league baseball that have not commented on what has happened over the course of the last week are our franchises and like it or not and regardless of who your constituency is the people that are buying your season tickets you do have An expectation, in my opinion, when you're a sports franchise, of taking a leadership role in your community. And to this point, credit to people like Jack Flaherty and Adam Wainwright and Dexter Fowler, and you just mentioned to me that a statement was made by Marco Scandella of the Blues. Credit to those people, but the leadership of those organizations need to say something, because a lot of what's happening here had its roots in Ferguson in 2014, and I think it is part of the responsibility, not only of the media, of us, but of the teams that we cover, sports are leaders, to have a statement, to make a statement that at least says we can't have this anymore and we have to find solutions to it. It's not that difficult to do.
2: No, and when you have, you know, specific to the Cardinals, players on the team who are affected by this and who are speaking out about this and they're having open dialogue, not only the message that it sends to to the community that you as an organization haven't spoken out about this, but what does it say to your players inside your own building who are talking about this and how they've been affected by this and how they want to work together to create positive dialogue and affect change when when they're looking to you ...for guidance, what what are they supposed to think?
1: Yeah, and those people are taking a leadership role. And again, credit to the people that organized the peaceful protests yesterday. And Lyda and the mayor, was involved with the peaceful protest in downtown St. Louis. And obviously, in O'Fallon, Missouri, that one was set up by a 17-year-old. And that was great. But once we got past dark, that was really ugly. And that is not what we should be, unfortunately. It's what the country has become, and our country is severely and awfully divided right now, and uh, it's just terrible. And by the way, I I just want to bring Freeze Pops into the conversation because Freeze Pops lives uh, near downtown and was hearing shots throughout the course of the evening and had to get up early to produce this show, but I want you to give us, uh, Freeze Pops, just a glimpse into what you were hearing and seeing last night. So I didn't see anything. Um, I heard a lot, though. Yeah, you know, I, I tried to stay in bed because I, I I didn't want to face it um, because then it would just keep me up all night worrying about what was going on. But there, it was loud. Um, you could you could hear a lot of commotion from where I live in Soulard. Um it, it was it was really scary, um, and it, it's it's a scary time right now and uh like you guys were saying it's important to have these conversations because we don't want to live in a country like this. We don't want to live in a country where there's so much unrest. So we need to come to we need to come to a solution uh as a community to figure out how we're going to get
0: past this because this is no way to live as a city.
1: And at the end of the day, if you are uh, and there've been a lot of Articles written about this, and this is not a revelation, but if you're on the side of Derek Chauvin, there's a problem. You, you can't be on the side of that knee. You have to be on the side of what's right and what is nice, and we as a, a country, we have way too much Racism and it's uh, unfortunately taught from a young age and I believe that the younger generation, I believe that Michelle and Freeze Pops, you guys are less racist as a, a group than mine and my generation is less racist than the group in front of us, but it's 2020. And the color of people's skin does not matter, and it should not matter to you. And I know that I'm not going to teach anybody who's been a racist for 40 years that that shouldn't be the case, that they shouldn't be racist. But we have to teach our children better. And those uh, those that have kids, make sure, if you have a nice bone in your body, that you're teaching your young kids that the color of somebody's skin doesn't matter at all.
2: At all. And I don't know how anyone could watch that video and not be horrified at the loss and devaluing of a human life. Yes, it's... it. At the root issue, it's the prejudice because of skin color. But when you watch that video, you're watching someone get murdered. It's pure evil. You're watching someone get murdered. And I I had some interesting conversations with some of my black friends yesterday because I thought, what's something that I can do right now to educate myself and inform myself on their life experiences and what I can do to make anything better? And one thing one of my black friends said to me yesterday was, think about this That cop does that, and all of these people immediately pull out their cell phones so that there's evidence of what's about to happen. That tells you how preconditioned we are as a society to understand racism and to understand police brutality against unarmed black people. Because people... people, people, If it was a shock, if this was the first time, no one would think, I'm going to pull up my phone and record this. Maybe after the first two minutes of the eight minutes, you would think that. But the, the fact that that is how we are conditioned to treat things like this is we need to get evidence of how this is happening tells you a lot as a society. And it's just unacceptable. It really is unacceptable.
1: Meanwhile, there might be baseball in the future. That's a weird segue.
2: But you know what? I think in the absence of sports, it has really shown a big light on this we don't have anything to distract us right now and that's part of the reason i think that this is different there's a lot of reasons why this feels different but i think it's because sports unifies people and in the absence of sports we are forced to sit in this mess and really examine the state of our country
1: and so i I want to touch on something so let's we'll hold off and we'll talk about baseball coming back Uh, but i I do want to spend a couple of minutes on this yesterday in washington dc we had americans being fired on with get, uh, rubber bullets and with tear gas by Americans. In the streets of Washington, D.C., at a peaceful protest, we had American citizens being fired on by the American military. It looked like North Korea. It was unbelievable what what is happening in our country. And by the way, it was done so that we could get a photo op in front of a church by a president who doesn't know anything about the Bible and hasn't been in a church in months.
2: It's just outrageous. (laughs) And I think part of the reason we're seeing things escalate to such violent levels is because there has been... You, you have people in power positions speaking out, but when the tippy-top of your American government is is talking about violence, about, about reacting to this with violence and inciting violence, that is not going to make the violence go away. If anything, it's going to amplify it, and it just, it breaks my heart, and I, I just don't know, I don't know the answer on how to make it better, on how to heal our country, and I hope that... That people are willing to have tough conversations and really examine their own behavior and think about, Hey, my intent isn't to be racist or my intent isn't to allow this, this systemic oppression to continue. But what, what is it about my daily behavior that's allowing this to continue? Is it me not speaking out? Is it, is it me not asking these questions? Is it me not having these tough conversations? But I feel like as a white person, it is my job to talk about the fact that I don't think that this is okay and that I need to vocalize that I am willing to listen. And help in any way that I can. There
1: are no two ways about this. Uh, There's only one good side in the racism discussion. There's not two sides to this. There's one good side and one evil side. And we have to become a community as America that does everything they can to eradicate evil.
2: Very much. And you and I spoke about this off the air yesterday, but in my life, I'll never know what it's like to be a black person. I will never know what it's like to be fearful of the structure and the organization and the police that is that is supposed to protect us. If I get pulled over by the police, never once in my life have I thought I could die right now. Never. Never. And that is your privilege. And it, it, it takes conversations with people to understand that. But in my lifetime, a power structure that has negatively affected me is the way that women have been treated. And I will never forget when Me Too happened. When Me Too first happened, I was at a ESPN and I had a lot of my male co-workers come to me and say has this happened to you? Can you tell me about this? I I didn't understand that this was something that was so prevalent and I was shocked that that they didn't realize what was existing around them Mm -hmm. but then instead of being angry about it we sat down and we had a really uncomfortable and important dialogue and I think you saw a lot of corporations and businesses listen to women and they said this is unacceptable. What can we do to change our policies to protect you and to not silence your voices and to get rid of the people that are trying to harm you and i wish that we we attacked racism the same way to say this is unacceptable what can we do to disrupt the structures in place to make it easier for you and to make it a better place
1: and you made such a salient point because you've had your experiences and neither of us can experience the terror that african-americans deal with on a daily basis in our country and we can say yeah that's horrible but unless you feel it you can't really appreciate it and demarco had a gun pulled on him in la at a gas station and he was face down on the ground uh my friend one of my best friends in life demetrius johnson has had to deal with this and it's terrifying but We think about how terrifying it is. They have to live with how terrifying it is. So uh, I think all of us hopefully can make this a better world and a a better place. And we have to talk about it because it's happening down the street from us in our community. And. I try and you try to make our community a better place, but we have to find a way to make it a better place. That is Michelle. I'm Randy, and this is 101 ESPN. All right, we're going to get to the idea of baseball coming back, and we also want to find out from you, if baseball doesn't come back this year, will you ever come back? You can use the Air Comfort Service text line 65780 or leave us a Rhino Shield mic drop, and we will get to sports next on 101 ESPN. Ownership is ready to make another proposal to players about having a baseball season. Players had suggested a 114-game season with their full pro rata in their latest proposal. And the newest proposal, according to Jeff Passan of ESPN, would include a 50-game season. And the players would be paid the full pro rata over the course of, essentially, a third of the season. The kicker here is that this one might not be a deal that either side has to negotiate. Here's Jeff Passan of ESPN.
3: I, I think the word threat would be used because if they are holding this hammer right there, saying we have the ability and the capacity to do this, how do you finish that sentence? I think the implicit part is unless you guys come to the table and we can come and find some sort of an agreement, and and honestly. If that is the legal interpretation, and I've read the document, looks right to me, it is a well executed maneuver by Major League Baseball to bring it back out at this point during these negotiations. Now, I spoke with some people on the player side who talked about the possibility of litigation. But the problem with that, Ravi, is that if you are then the party, that is saying, we're going to take this thing to an arbitrator instead of on the field. While you can say we're gonna take it to an arbitrator because we want to play more games, you are logically stopping games from being played.
1: Because of the time that you're spending in mm-hmm. arbitration, owners came in with an 82 game proposal, players came back with 114 game proposal, owners came back with, or are coming back with this threat And apparently they can do it. I haven't seen the document. You heard Jeff Passon say that he has, that they can implement a 50-game schedule if they so desire. A 50-game baseball schedule, to me, makes no sense at all, Michelle. And we talk a lot about asterisks for these seasons, Mm -hmm. baseball, basketball, hockey. If you have a 50-game season, there's got to be an asterisk.
2: You have to. It's less less than a third of a normal season. Yeah. I mean, it, it has to be considered to have an asterisk next to it. Part of me thinks 50 games, I'll take it. I'll take any baseball at this point. But I hope that this is again one of those situations where the owners are saying, okay, we're going to have, we have X amount of money. You guys decide how many games you want, but we're going to propose 50 and we're going to, we're going to meet in the middle. It's not going to be 50. It's not going to be 114. We're going to find a happy medium in the middle here and. We've But we've been talking about this for weeks. Mm-hmm. This is an extreme proposal. Hopefully, they'll compromise. Okay, they've countered with a little bit of an extreme proposal here, but they've given a little bit here. Time is running out, and they're going to have to come to an agreement here soon, and both sides are going to have to compromise here soon. But I just I can't imagine that a 50-game baseball schedule is what either side would feel pleased with landing on.
1: And if I'm the owners or if I'm the players, what I would do, because all of the... Ideas about playing this season, at least on the ownership side, are predicated on them getting to the postseason. If they play a regular postseason, non-expanded postseason, they get $777 million from TV. If they expand, they'll probably get close to a billion. Why not bonus the players, all of the players, on how much postseason is played? If you're going to play extra games, give the players an extra couple hundred million dollars from the postseason that you're playing. That's money that the owners weren't going to have anyway, right? Mm -hmm. So why not give the players an extra $250 million to split among themselves if you play a full expanded postseason?
2: I like that idea. Reward them for the postseason, right, because and, you're getting the TV revenue. yep.
1: And, and the players probably during the regular season would have to take a minor discount, not a drastic cut like they were proposed over the weekend, but a minor discount. if they take fifteen percent, uh, everybody takes a fifteen percent haircut, and then they're bonused with the postseason money. I don't know what the math would be, but there's got to be a math to make the players closer to whole where the owners still wouldn't be threatened by uh, losing money on a season. Mark Adanasio, the owner of the Brewers, said last week that... If the owners accepted the players' proposal of full pro rata, that 90% of baseball's revenues would go to the players and they would have 10% to spend on everything else, all their other employees, all of the, the travel, all of the insurance, all of the uh, ancillary expenses, even debt service on stadiums that owners do have to pay to keep baseball going. So I don't think that full pro rata is something that the owners would want i would think that the owners the owners that are saying it'd be cheap for us cheaper for us to not play would probably win out rather than the full pro rata
2: being paid and while i appreciate that different proposals have been brought forth because it means that they're still communicating and hopefully getting to the point where a deal will be done don't you read this a little bit as the owners is proposing 50 games knowing that the players are going to say no and inherently trying mm-hmm. to still make them look bad
1: yeah, definitely. And there's no need for that right no now. No
2: need for that.
1: They should be, and you can't force them into a room now because of the pandemic, but they should be forced to be on their Zoom call for hours to hammer things out. This is not as difficult as they're making it out to be. Spend 12 hours in front of your computer and get something hammered out. We asked you earlier, and we want to hear from you with the mic drop feature on the 101 ESPN app, the Rhino Shield mic drop, and via your text If baseball doesn't play in 2020, would you be back next year? And I think that baseball would really be, baseball fans would be really turned off. Here's a text from the 636. I won't be coming back. The Cardinals refuse to put a product on the field that's inspiring. Why do they feel I should support them while I'm furloughed?
2: Wow, that's a good point.
1: Yep. And this baseball back and forth has turned me off to baseball. Baseball is stuck in the past. And then you have this. Only baseball could mess up in times like this.
2: Which is true. We talked about this with Dan McLaughlin yesterday. About I asked him, why do you think it is that baseball cannot get out of their own way? And it's as a community that loves baseball, it's so frustrating for us to watch it go down this way and have the fringe baseball fan or the casual baseball fan be so put off by mm-hmm. this. And you and I had this conversation yesterday off the air about the those people coming back. And if you if you look at every baseball market in America, I, I feel comfortable saying that I think St. Louis is probably the most untouchable market mm-hmm. as far as fan support and fan loyalty. You know, we love the Cardinals like they're a member of our family. It's part of the fabric of our lives. The Cardinals can do things to upset us. We can say, oh, the the product is uninspiring. We're gonna go to games. We're gonna we're gonna listen to games. We're gonna support the Cardinals. But even in a city like St. Louis I don't know if there isn't a group of people that won't be returning if this doesn't happen. And I, the more I think about it, St. Louis is a community that while we love baseball and while we support the Cardinals, we have been very affected by ownership greed. We've watched the Rams be ripped out of town and the NFL dismiss us and, and not really care about the fans and not really care about the actual team. It's just about their pockets and about greed. And so... I I don't know if there's not a huge group of people in St. Louis that with the residue of those feelings from the NFL would look at baseball and say, this is just another greedy ownership group. Uh, I I don't want to support them. I'm not going to give them my hard earned money.
1: Great point. As a community, as a St. Louis community, maybe not just as baseball fans, we look at things with a little bit more of a jaundiced eye. Lisa is a real fan. What would Lisa do if we don't play in 2020? Here's a mic drop.
0: Morning, guys. I like your question. Being raised by a grandpa that told me I was a Cardinal fan at 9, it's part of the DNA of who I am. But this has done something to me, so I will definitely go. But I won't go as much. So I will still watch it on TV. But I don't think I'll go as much. And I know those around me definitely won't go as much. So anyway, I hope they get their act together. Thanks.
1: I do too, because I think that's a prevailing thought. I'm sure in the rest of the country, and Michelle, like you said... We might have the most untouchable franchise in terms of fan base. And it was affected in 95. Granted, bad team. But it took a lot to bring Cardinal fans back after that strike. And as one texture noted earlier, they're messing up in the midst of a pandemic. I think this is even worse than a normal billionaires versus millionaires fight over money.
2: Yeah, because normally we could, while uh, the billionaires and millionaires were fighting over money and trying to come to a deal, numb ourselves or distract ourselves with other sports. Uh, You know, we would say, oh, what's happening in baseball is so gross, but that's so baseball. Let's watch the Stanley Cup final. And, And we would get our sports joy elsewhere. Now, because we have the absence of all sports in general, the only thing we can really talk about right now is this beef between the Baseball Players Association and the owners. It is put on full display for all of us to witness and to see how tone deaf they are and see how they don't really seem to be caring about how revealing the way that this is going down is impacting the public perception of the league and impacting the fans is it's disheartening it really is
1: and we welcome your mic drops and texts throughout the course of the morning and we'll wrap up this segment with this one from the 636 baseball bring on the mls and that is another prevailing thought. By the way, they're talking about a lockout too, which isn't very appealing. (laughs) Coming up on Juneteenth, ESPN is going to air another great documentary. This one's called Long Gone Summer. It's about the 1998 home run chase between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, and it's directed by Edwardsville native A.J. Schnack, who attended Mizzou. A.J. is going to join us next to talk about his project with Carrick and Smallman on 101 ESPN. to Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN with Michelle Smallman. I'm Randy Carricker. and on June 14th ESPN is going to have another Sunday night documentary and it's called Long Gone Summer featuring the 1998 home run chase between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and it's directed by A.J. Schnack, who is our guest right now on the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. He is the director and uh, has been working hard on this documentary. A.J., thanks for taking some time with us today. How are you doing?
0: uh i'm doing well how are you guys doing
1: good i want to start with this you're an edwardsville guy and a mizzou guy how much pleasure did you take in being able to put this together because it was part of your young adulthood
0: yeah no it was a big thrill and something i was trying to make happen for uh, a while and uh, when we finally got uh, all the pieces together and were able to start shooting it kind of didn't seem uh didn't seem quite real but um you know, it was a big part of my childhood growing up with the Cardinals and have a lot of relatives up in the Chicago area. So the, the rivalry with the Cubs was always uh, pretty big. Um, so that time, 98, that summer and that uh, battle between those two gentlemen for the home run chase uh, was something that was really uh, important to my baseball life. To be able to tell that story was, was great.
2: AJ, we know when a documentary is made, there's so many pieces that need to be put into place to execute something like this. You have to get all the footage. You have to arrange all the interviews. So how long have you and your team been working on this documentary?
0: Uh, Almost three years. We had the first conversations um, in 2017. um, sorry, Sorry, talking to the... Cardinals and trying to get to both uh, Mark and Sammy and get them to be involved. Um, so yeah, we we did about about a little over, little under two years of kind of pre-production and started shooting last year in uh, in March.
2: And we know that with The Last Dance, a lot of what we were hearing on social media is that it wasn't slated to start until a couple weeks after it did, but things got pushed up because of the pandemic. Did, did this happen with your documentary as well? Did the timeline get moved up because of what's going on in the world?
0: Yeah, our timeline got completely shattered. Um, we were supposed to have a premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival in April, and so we were working really hard and pushing towards that, and then... Um, found out that that festival wasn't going to happen, obviously, because of the, the pandemic. And so we took a, a break and thought, oh, we'll have this time to really get the film where we want it to. And a few weeks later, ESPN said, um, oh, no, your air date, we're going to move it up to June. And so everybody suddenly then was back, you know, working really hard, but working in a completely different way because we're, we're not in the same room with one another. We're doing everything remotely. Um, so it's uh, it's been a lot more challenging uh, to to try to finish uh, in the current environment, but um, but yeah, it's it's we we both have been delayed and accelerated
1: at the same time. AJ Snack directed Long Gone Summer is coming up on June 14th on ESPN. When you talk about rushing things and having to turn in a perfect product and everybody wants to turn in the perfect product, over the course of the three years, A.J., what's the biggest challenge been? Has it been this?
0: Yeah, I mean, the uh, certainly the, f- the finishing in a way that you're not um, able to have your, your close uh, team partners you know, right by your side. Um, we've certainly figured out ways to share screens on our computers and uh, do a bunch of workarounds where we're as as close as we can be. Um, but, you know, you rely on all of your, um, you know, your fellow partners and creative team members to help you get to the, the end of a journey like this. And it's, so it's definitely a, a much more challenging experience um, than, you know, just the, the rest of the project because the rest of it was such a dream, um, you know, great we had a great crew it was great to shoot in St. Louis and Chicago um, so yeah this is this is definitely um something that we've never dealt with before.
2: AJ, when you're putting together your storyboard, I guess, and your list of interviews that you want to go after for this documentary, I'm, sh- I'm sure the list is long. And there's some members of this that will be excited to contribute to this documentary, and I'm sure some might have been reluctant. Who was one person involved in this that was harder for you to nail down for an interview than maybe some of the others?
0: You know, I think... For us, it was just really important um, that Mark and Sammy um, sit down. I think that was important to ESPN as well. So, just getting both of them uh, to agree and to kind of you know get get those interviews to actually happen. Because you know it wasn't just a thing where we were saying like, "Hey, give us five minutes." It was you know we want to sit down more than once. We want to sit down for several hours each time. We want to you know, really dig deep into, you know, what happened that summer. Um, so just kind of getting both of them on board and getting those interviews scheduled and happening. Um, once we got the first one with each of them, it became, you know, everything became a lot easier because then kind of word went out among people who are, you know, friends and loyalists to both of them, you know, like, okay, um, they've, they've done it, so this is something that we feel comfortable doing. I think for a lot of people they wanted to wait to make sure that it was something that mark and or sammy were going to participate
1: in aj what sense did you get from those two about how they feel what they think of each other now
0: i I got the sense that sammy kind of feels the same that he um you know, still looks up a lot to to Mark and and views him as the man. Um, and you know, I think he would really like uh, to uh, have some of their together magic again. Um, I think you know, for Mark, what was interesting to me is I think he has very warm feelings about that experience and that summer, but is also able to to talk about the fact that they. Really didn't have as much time together as it seemed. Um, you know, when uh, you look back at that that time, you know, people were just describing them as this great friendship, and as, it was kind of as if, as if as they were together a lot. But the reality was is that they were kind of brought together in in sort of limited situations, at limited times, either right before or during a game. And, uh, you know, they certainly made the most of those moments, um, but they may, may not have been as plentiful as, as you know, we, we perceived at the time.
1: We obviously have the, the Cards-Cubs rivalry. Would you classify those two as being rivals?
0: I think that they weren't really. I mean, in a sense, they definitely were competitors. Um, they were definitely um, feeding on one another. I think the fact that so many times during that season they were um, – One would hit a home run and the other one would uh, follow, you know, uh, 15, 20 minutes, you know, two innings later, um, that they would just really go back and forth. Um, They really drove one another, which is, you know, I think that two person uh, competition is one of the reasons why that summer became what it became. In addition to the fact that it was between these two great rival teams, um, I think if it had been Mark and Ken Griffey, even if they had been pushing each other uh, toward toward the uh, uh, you know the record, you wouldn't have had that that magical moment. The Mariners aren't going weren't going to come in and play the Cardinals in September, um, and and I think that that uh, there was something about just how all of the baseball gods came to, you know put everything together for the way that season uh, concluded that made it um, pretty special.
2: AJ with any great story there's always a lot of tentacles and for this one specifically there's what happened in the moment with the home run race and the excitement and the rivalry between the two of them how many people say it saved baseball and then there's what happened in the aftermath with steroids and how that impacted baseball. Was that difficult for you to figure out how to strike the tone to tell both of those stories and did you tell both of those stories.
0: Yeah, I mean, we we definitely deal with um, kind of the what we know now aspect of, of this story. I mean, one thing that was important to me, though, was, you know, for a lot of people, there's a whole generation of baseball fans who that's the only part of the story that they know um, is that this took place during the steroid era. And Mark has admitted that he used steroids uh, during that time period and during that year. Um, but, you know they don't have the sense of what that moment felt like at the time so one of our main objectives is to say like this was a very special moment not just in baseball not just in sports but in american history and let's try to as best we can recreate what that moment felt like Um, and yeah, then we're going to talk about, you know, what we've learned since then, maybe what we should have known at the time. Um, but the initial goal is to say, you know, hey, let's go back to that summer and kind of put you back in what that felt like emotionally um, at, at that time.
1: A.J. Snack has directed Long Gone Summer, the story of the 1998 home run chase between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. More with A.J. coming up with Carrick and Smallman on 101 ESPN. A.J. Schnack is the director of Long Gone Summer, the Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa documentary coming up June 14th on ESPN. A.J. is with us now in the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. And A.J., it is amazing for people that aren't old enough to know, during that summer of 1998, McGuire and Sosa, whenever they would step to the plate, ESPN would cut in. And you had Fox coming in to follow McGuire during the chase for 60 and 61 and 62. And I want to touch on that night that McGuire hit 62 because I've seen a lot. here I, I saw the St. Louis Rams win a Super Bowl. I've seen multiple Cardinal World Series championships. I've seen the Blues in person advancing to a Stanley Cup final. But I still people tell people now, the coolest event I've ever seen was that night nine eight ninety eight when McGuire hit number sixty two.
0: Yeah, and it's so unusual for baseball. You know, the the thing we think about baseball always is the the team aspect of that sport. And to have this individual uh, accomplishment, this individual achievement between uh, this battle for a record between two guys happening right in front of you you know people describe them you know as, as you know gladiators fighting each other in the in the arena you know I mean this is a this is not a typical baseball uh, moment and yet it it because of how they both approached it um, it Brought out some of the best of what we think of in in baseball and the traditions of baseball and how it connected to previous generations like the Maris family. Um, It was it was definitely not just a baseball event. it was a national event that uh, dominated headlines, I mean, it was front page news all over the country. And you're right, ESPN was breaking in, and I know myself and lots of people, you know, you'd tune into Sports Center every night or first thing in the morning to see, you know, did these guys hit a home run last mm-hmm. night? Um, because, you know, you couldn't pull out your phone <laughs> and look <laughs> at, at your screen and then have it tell you like immediately at the time, you know, like whether or not one of them hit a home run. But as that season progressed, you wouldn't even have to wait for SportsCenter. It was coming on... Local radio here in Los Angeles, where I live, it was um, you know being talked about on the streets. Oh, did you hear? You know, McGuire hit sixty, you know, five last night. Uh, Should have had sixty six, but they called it back. Uh, That kind of conversation was happening in a way around sports that I had never heard before that, um, and I I haven't heard since.
2: AJ, well, this was certainly a big national story and a story that's important in the history of of baseball as a whole. It always takes on a little bit of a different feel when you are the hometown kid and you have an emotional tie to it so as somebody that lived through this and enjoyed watching it from a, a hometown perspective and knew a lot about what what happened as it happened what's the one thing that you learned about this story as you went through the process that you didn't know before
0: wow, that's an interesting question um I, I, a lot of things um some of which i won't spoil yet um that uh, Mark and Sammy said that I wasn't uh, aware of, and Mark tells us something, um, that when I asked Tony LaRusa about it, um, Tony said, you know, that's the first time I'm hearing about it right now. <laughs> uh, so there were a few things, uh, that, that were said that I, I was not, um, familiar with, but, you know, I think that, one thing, as a you know, as a Cardinal fan, you know that was really interesting to me about the story. You know, having grown up with Whitey Ball and you know these teams that would just grind out you know one run at a time, um, you know the, the the spectacle of having someone like Mark come into Bush Stadium um, and just hit these towering home runs, um, and and hearing from a, a bunch of people, you know how. That summer, um, you know, in addition to the fact that people thought it might be the summer that Mark could, could do this and, and maybe Grippy, um, the reasons why they thought he might be able to do it, which had included, um, some changing to the dimensions in, in Bush Stadium the year before, um, just that the way in which, you know, the, the humidity of St. Louis, uh, would affect Mark as somebody who had been hitting in, like, uh, the Bay Area for previous years. Um, there there were a lot of aspects of that that I found interesting that I hadn't really thought about before I got into the project
1: couple more quick things for A.J. Snack. He has directed Long Gone Summer. You'll see it June 14th on ESPN and shortly after that, obviously, on ESPN+. Plus. Uh, I want to ask you about just the documentary business right now. As a filmmaker, I know you're a fan of films, A.J., and you watch Last Dance and the way that they would present the iPad to Jordan or other people and they would react. There are a lot of creative things happening with documentaries, and ESPN is doing has done a great job with 30 for 30 over the years. What do you think of what's going on now with sports documentaries?
0: I mean, I think it's, it's showing that what we've been seeing uh, the last few years around documentaries generally and the, the rise and advance of the various streaming platforms and how traditional networks are now having their own um streaming platforms um is giving you know people an opportunity to watch you know all kinds of, of things and um and it's been great as somebody who makes you know documentaries to see that people want to watch documentaries and they want to see you know stories um both familiar and unfamiliar and they are they're curious about it in different forms and formats and lengths um you know there used to be a time not that long ago, you know, where if you would have said, like, hey, we're going to do 10 hours on the Chicago Bulls in the 90s, um, people would have said, you know, like, well, how would. It- Who's going to watch? No one's <laughs> going to watch that. You know, no one's going to care about ten hours of watching uh, sports events that they've already seen and already know. Um, and so, I think that having uh, having seen what a huge success that was, and granted, part of it is because we were we're starved for sports, and we, you know, we're thrilled to have this opportunity to sit and watch this story again. Um, it's just it's great. It's gratifying, and I think you know, even the conversations I'm having with people it's around like new ways of approaching uh, the format of documentary in sports and in other topics as well and that's you know as a as someone who makes them and wants to do things differently you know each time that's that's very exciting
1: And finally, again, as a filmmaker, you want to have drama. And you can't find more dripping drama than what we had in that last weekend of the baseball season in 98, can you? With Sammy passing McGuire on Friday night and then McGuire hitting five home runs to close things out. I just remember that feeling. I remember being at a football car, uh It was a Cardinals-St. Louis Rams game, and the Rams had to call timeout because when McGuire hit 70, everybody in the stands was listening to their radios, heard McGuire hit number 70, and the place went crazy while the Rams were on the field. The drama was palpable throughout the city and really throughout the country for that last weekend. How much do you delve into that last weekend?
0: Yeah, I mean, the last weekend... Uh, uh, Big part of the story, and, and I think that it's um, a part that a lot of people don't remember because uh, you know sixty two was you know as we talked about it was nationally telecast it was a huge event um, but there were still two and a half weeks <laughs> left of the season um, and and I think that, that that last weekend watching you know Sammy <laughs> you know hit six friday um you know you just couldn't have guessed what was going to come next i mean could could sammy hit a couple of more you know seemed seemed like he was on a roll at that point um and mcguire sort of slowed down after uh, he hit 62 so um to see what he did you know it's unsurprising to me now having talked to him at length and talking to other people uh who were close to him at length um but it it still is is a a miraculous thing for him to have hit those home runs that uh, that final uh, weekend of of '98, and um, you know, there's a story that uh, that Tony La Russa tells in the film that I, I'm pretty sure uh, has never been told before, um, which is uh, is a pretty interesting one. So I, I think people will be uh, very curious to hear that when it airs.
1: Can't wait to see it. Can't wait for uh, your success to show up on ESPN on June 14th. We're really looking forward to it, AJ. Thanks so much for taking some time with us. We do appreciate it. And best of luck with the film.
0: Thanks so much. It was a super thrill to try to show off my uh, my view of St. Louis and my my feelings about the Cardinals and, and the Cubs rivalry. So I hope uh, everyone in St. Louis really enjoys it.
1: We can't wait. Coming up on June 14th, Sunday night, that's Father's Day night. It's called Long Gone Summer, and A.J. Schnack is the director. And, Michelle, I, I, I'm i really looking forward to this, and I'm intrigued by it. One quick note. Uh, Tony Larusa is a great guy, and you and I both have a great relationship with Tony. And my general manager at KMOX was leaving in... Uh, Nineteen ninety-eight, early in the season. I guess he left about May or June. And I went to, went into Tony because the guy was a huge Cardinal fan and he was going to Chicago. And I said, uh, hey, can you help me out getting something from McGuire so, as a going-away present for mm-hmm. our, our GM? And I said, yeah, no problem. So he went and grabs a bat out of the bat rack and a Sharpie goes over to McGuire and has McGuire sign it to him oh, awesome. as a, as a going-away present. And McGuire was happy to do that. But there's also a story about how during that summer he went to a local memorabilia shop and was he goes up and they've got all these mcguire autographed items behind the uh, on the wall displayed behind the the glass counter and he said didn't sign that didn't sign that that's not me that's not me that's not me and there was a bunch of counterfeit mcguire stuff and he was here's mcguire telling the the owner of the shop wow i didn't sign any of this
2: Wow that's crazy yeah so uh, I wonder what the owner of the shop did if he removed the items That's
1: a good question I don't know
2: because I bet there was people yeah. that would have still bought it thinking yeah. it was McGuire's signature
1: right no doubt wow. and it'll be fun to relive some of those memories on June 14th. Don't forget at the bottom of the next hour we have the fight and we'd love to have you text in 65780 just with the word fight 65780 if you'd like to participate in today's fight. Michelle and I will bring you our fresh take coming up next on 101 ESPN. That was the Carriker and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN.